Thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Our next guest put together a project to stand up paddleboard the entire length of the Chesapeake Bay from Havre de Grace up there at the very top of the bay in Maryland, all the way down to the Virginia Beach area facing the Atlantic Ocean, right there where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Chesapeake Bay. That's about a 203 mile journey and it took him about nine days to to cover that entire length of the bay and in our interview with him you'll find out more of the details of what it took to actually get it done please welcome our interview with chris hopkinson i read about your project i think it was last week in the chesapeake bay journal and uh i was really intrigued by that and so i thought i'd reach out to you and see if you'd mind telling us a little bit about it and uh, so I appreciate you joining us this afternoon. Um, before we get going, I was just wondering if you could just introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, what you do, that kind of thing, your family. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Chris Hopkinson. I guess I'm, I'm now known as the Bait Paddler, having just completed the first ever successful attempt to stand up paddleboarding all 200 miles of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I live right outside of Annapolis in Arnold uh, with my wife and three kids who are almost 15, 13, and 10. So we got a high schooler, a middle schooler, an elementary schooler, all wow. Zoom, Zoom schooling, which is, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's harder. I, I wish I was paddling. It was much easier being on the bay <laughs> than dealing with homeschooling. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, grew, I actually grew up here as well. So I, I grew up in Annapolis. Have, have pretty much lived here my whole life. I did spend some time in D.C. and in Baltimore City for a while. So I, I've definitely grown up in and around in and around the Bay for 46 years now. Wow. Very cool. What What do you do professionally? I work for a company called Ready Education. Uh, we're a mobile app platform for higher ed institutions. So we work with about 350 colleges as their campus app. So um, like if the University of Maryland had a, had a, had a school branded app, we, we would potentially be, you know, the platform powering it. Cool. What, what does that do? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. I mean, um, everything. So students can check their courses, grades, pay bills, uh, campus events, activities, join clubs and groups, chat with other students, like everything that, you know, all us old schoolers had to do in person, they can yeah. now do with their thumbs and fingers. Sweet. And how long have you been doing that kind of thing? I've been doing it for a while. So like uh, about 13 years, I guess. Um, only about half of it was in the higher ed space, but it was a company that started 13 years ago. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So what was the genesis of this project to, to uh, I guess, stand up paddleboard? Uh, over the course of about nine days, I guess, over 200 miles, the, the entire Chesapeake, length of the Chesapeake Bay? Yeah, so honestly, I, I for, so let me um, sort of set the stage. Like, I'm no expert paddleboarder by, by any means. Um, 
and I had no ambitions or goals of like proving myself by paddleboarding the entire length of the Chesapeake Bay. I I got into paddleboarding probably I can't remember now either four or six years ago. You know, my wife bought me a a big old you know paddleboard just to kind of get me out of the house probably and. Um, you know, she was nice enough at the time to include some life jackets. So that meant I had to take the kids with me. So, I mean, paddleboarding for me really was just a way to get on the water. I, you know, even though I grew up around the bay and everything, like most people, I didn't own a boat. Um, and so, you know, really had very limited access to the water and, until I got a paddleboard. And even when I did have the board, most of the time it was just you know, going a couple miles, very recreational. A lot of times the kids were with me on the front. So it ended up being like a swim platform more than a paddleboard. Um, you know, I, I would do it, you know, really just to get out of the house. I'm definitely somebody who likes to be moving around. Um, the, the oyster part and, and really the genesis of the bay paddle started because I, I found out that a single oyster can filter 50 gallons of water per day, which I had no idea. Uh, and, you know, growing up around here, um, never knew what an oyster really did other than, you know, serve as a, as a good appetizer. Um, my daughter at the time, who was 12, we did a science fair experiment for, I think, her sixth grade class. So we had a 20-gallon fish tank. We filled it up with really murky Magathy River water, which is kind of where, near where we live off the bay. Um, and we bought a dozen oysters from Annapolis Seafood Market. And, you know, the the water was so dark, you could barely tell. And it was a small tank. You could barely tell there was even oysters in it. And after about three to four hours, you could see your hand clear across the other side. So it it was it was amazing to see the oysters at work. And so huh. I kind of started reading up on on oysters a little bit you know obviously everybody hears about the health of the bay and it's you know it's not doing that great and it's always got like a failing score or a c score or whatever it might be um and the reality is the oyster population is down 99 percent. so to me it just seems like a really good connection that if we have more oysters in the bay the bay would be healthier and it really seemed like a good story that everybody could understand right wow a single oyster filters 50 gallons of water and i bet if we did a fundraiser and you know got people to donate we could put a lot of oysters back in the bay and so the idea of the paddle started there how could i do something that would draw a lot of attention and awareness to oyster recovery partnership which is the nonprofit that i partnered with um, and ultimately put a lot of oysters back in the bay I love how seeing that simple experiment unfold before your eyes was, uh, hit, you know, that hit so close to home for you. It was amazing. We actually have like on the baypaddle.org uh, website and you can, you can like uh, YouTube search them, but there are other time-lapse videos of oysters and fish tanks cleaning the water. So, you know, it, that watching it, you know, we watched it, we didn't stare at it for three hours, but you know, there, the tank was in our kitchen um, and you could literally see like the oysters kind of bubbling and opening up their, their shells and uh, seeing it firsthand was very eye-opening for me. Um, and honestly, like most people I talk to, or even now that the, the paddle is over, you know, so many people come up to me and are like, I had no idea what an oyster did, right? Just like I had no idea what they did. 
um, and or how important they are to the Bay. And so, you know, the whole goal here, so far we've raised $180,000, which will put 18 million oysters in the Bay. The goal is, was, is 200,000. We're, we're continuing to do obviously fundraising, but some events um, throughout the year. Um, because a $10 donation puts a thousand oysters in the bay. And so $10 in some ways will ultimately help filter 50,000 gallons of water. And that, that to me is just a really good return on a fairly small donation. I had not heard that the bay had lost 99% of its oysters. Yeah, so like the crab population and like the rockfish population, um, which people always are kind of paying attention to, they're actually doing pretty pretty well. I mean, they're not as it's certainly not as good as it used to be, but they're nowhere near the deficit of the oyster population. The oyster population is just it's gone. Um, and the crabs, the fish, and the grasses—they actually like the oysters are kind of the heart of the bay. They they're the ones that kind of create the environment for those crabs and fish and grasses to all thrive. And so without them, you know, everything is going to eventually get as depleted as the oysters. Um, and so I've just kind of now become a really big fan of, of, of oysters. Obviously, I spent, you know, almost 60 hours paddling the bay just to, to raise more money and awareness for them. And it was, it was the, the, by far the most fun, the best journey, the hardest thing and that I've ever done. Um, I, I was so grateful, um, even though I had like hypothermia, I had sunburn, I was getting thrown all over the bay, uh, but I was so grateful to experience the bay the way that I did. Were the, are the oyster, the population decreased, you may not know this, but um, because of overfishing? It's harvesting a little, yeah, we, it definitely started that way. So like, um, I don't remember how many, how long ago, but there was like oyster wars in the 1800s and we definitely over harvested the population. Okay. Um, oh, and over time that contributed to the decline, but now also it's kind of like this, the circle of life, so to speak, like the oysters have declined, the water's gotten polluted. In some cases, the water is not like, it's not, it's not healthy enough to even raise oysters. Um, so that's been part of it too. It's been harvesting and, and some, you know, pollution. So yeah. really creating the whole ecosystem and this positive, positive physical environment for oysters and for humans through the water. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, the oysters need themselves <laughs> to, to, you know, remain healthy and to, to continue to, to increase the population. They also need us to donate money. I mean, more than anything else. So I guess the assumption is there that the oysters we are putting back in there are doing okay, as long as they don't. They get are, and, and like <laughs> through like oyster, yeah, through like oyster recovery partnership, which is who I work with. Like they they create um, reefs that can't be harvested, so like they're protected reefs um, mm. that they're doing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's good to know. Cindy loves oysters, so she's part of the problem. I do, but I don't. <laughs> Bay oysters. I eat <laughs> West Coast. <laughs> so it's a, like that's an interesting dilemma. So like um, a lot like oyster recovery actually works with about 300 restaurants, and so ironically they they need recycled oyster shells in order to grow healthy oyster spat, which are basically like tiny tiny oyster baby fragments. Um, so they don't like lobby against 
harvesting or eating oysters because they need the shells. And so mm -hmm. the shells are what create the reefs for the spats to start to grow. Um, so right now they, they work really hard on, on recycling. And then again, like wherever they're planting oyster, those, those are protected reefs. Interesting. So Oyster Recovery Partnership was who you partnered with. Are there other oyster recovery nonprofits out there doing similar things? Um, I'm sure there are. I mean, ORP here, they're like the boots in the water. Um, so a lot of times when other larger nonprofit organizations, bay organizations need to put oysters in the bay, they, they use ORP um, okay. to do it. So they're definitely like literally the, the boots in the water planting and, and doing all the oyster uh, reefs. And uh, I listened to one podcast interview with you last week and the interviewer insinuated several times he thought you were crazy for doing this. And the thought never crossed my mind yeah. that what you were doing is crazy. <laughs> it's great. It's awesome. <laughs> what, why do you think some people think something like what you did, you know, spending nine days out on the water? covering 240 miles on a stand-up paddleboard or 200, how many ever miles? Uh, why is that crazy to some people? Yeah, I mean, so it hadn't been done before. Um, and it is, and most people, I mean, most like, you know, more than 99% have never on any vessel or anything else traveled the length of the bay. There are a huh. lot of boats that, that can't do it, right? Like you, you wouldn't go traveling the length of the bay probably on anything smaller than a 26 foot powerboat and in some conditions that those wouldn't be good out there either um mm -hmm. so you know, i think folks who are really familiar with the bay and the types of conditions that uh we could see out there and and i experienced all of them understand how difficult a task it is and that it it might there, there's a chance i heard it um, I heard it from folks and I definitely thought it after the first day that, Hey, this might actually not be possible. Um, because I, I picked the wrong week to go out. Like it just, I, you know, I've been training for about a year and a half paddling on the bay, um, in all kinds of conditions. And I just so happened to get the week where it was like 10 to 15 plus knot winds for like five straight days, which meant like two to three foot swells. And like, I had never seen the bay. And I know it's happened before, but I had never seen it like that. Um, and in most cases, to be honest, like if it was blowing 15 plus knots, I would, you know, in training, I'd be like, yeah, I'm not going out there today. You know, yeah. it's a little too risky for me, especially because most of the time in my training, I, I'm by myself. There's nobody with me, no, no boat support or anything. Um, so I think a lot of folks realize like, hey man, you don't, the conditions out there can be extremely challenging. Around here, they can change within a couple hours. Um, you know, you got hurricane season, you got summer season, you got winds one direction in the morning, a totally different direction in the afternoon, you got afternoon thunderstorms. There's just so many things that can happen out on the bay. Um, I, I think the reason that no one had done it before is because they thought it was too crazy or maybe maybe i think crazy was probably just a polite way of calling me stupid um yeah. which which is fine right i just you know i think my naivety towards the yeah. bay and paddling it was what worked for me 
yeah. not knowing what to expect was what made it in my mind seem possible and get mm -hmm. you out there doing it yeah yeah so a year and a half to train for that what what did you do what was your training regimen like yeah so um you know as i mentioned I, I i was a recreational paddler and then i had this crazy idea and so i was like well i gotta start figuring out how i'm gonna how i'm gonna pull this off and so last year almost this time exactly uh, at the end of october in 2019 i did a race called chattajack which is in chattanooga and it's a 31.8 mile paddleboard race and actually most of the folks who do that race are kayakers or outriggers or, or canoes and there's you know maybe 100 125 subs um and so I started training for that last summer by paddling up and down the bay, going from, you know, the Magathie to the Patapsco, which is up near Baltimore, or the Magathie to the Severn down in Annapolis and back, and, and really doing some pretty, you know, 15 to 25-mile paddles on, on the bay. Um, that was kind of my first experience in those types of conditions on the bay and doing those types of distances. And I really just wanted to get a sense of, like, what's this going to take and what's going to break down first? Like what part of my body am I going to start to have to really be concerned about? Um, and did that fine. It was, it was, I'm so glad I did it because it did give me a good sense of, of paddling and what it would take. And I found out, you know, like, okay, it's, 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 it's your legs that you need the most. They, they take the brunt of, paddling, even though folks would be arms and back. And I did end up having some elbow issues, uh, which carried over to, to this year. And so in March, I, I worked with an organization called Paddle Monster um, and one of their pro uh, female paddlers. In fact, she's, I think she's the number one pro female in the world. Her name is Seychelle Webster. She ended up really volunteering to be my coach because she supported the, what I was doing. And I worked with her on like a 22-week training program that she put together. Um, and, and that's what ultimately kind of got me physically ready to paddle the bay. Cool. So, all right, your physical training. And then what about your mental training? I mean, these are long, arduous days um, and, you know, seeing the same things over and over again. And, and how did you keep your spirits up and how did you train mentally for this? Yeah, so great question and a couple of things. Um, uh, one is like I, I don't have any sort of superpowers or endurance or whatever it might be. Um, no great athlete and I was not a great paddler. I do think that I, I do have the ability because people ask me all the time like, oh my gosh, you know, seven, eight, nine hours on a paddleboard. What are you thinking about? And like for some reason – I'm almost like a Seinfeld, you know, episode. Like I can think about nothing for seven hours and be good. <laughs> oh my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a common, you know, it's, it's great when you're paddling, maybe not so great when you're trying to parent and be a good husband, but I can just go back <laughs> and be, and be perfectly content. Um, so in that area, I was good. I will say that, and this was completely unexpected, and it's almost, it's made it really hard to come down off of this paddle is I had, I just got so much support from our community, like hundreds of texts and social media and email and everything. Just people saying like, this is unbelievable. I, I think 
we got a lot of press beforehand and, and people were supporting it. But once I got on the water and people, especially around here, saw the conditions I was in and Oyster Recovery did a really good job of like documenting how I was doing each day. And I would try to post some videos. Um, I got so many messages that people are like, oh, my gosh, man, you're you are such an inspiration. Keep doing like just keep going. It was just keep moving forward. All, all those messages. And I, that really lifted me up. I remember had one particularly bad day. I had two really bad days, but one towards the end. It was the only day where I, we didn't make it to our destination. So we always had a goal destination in mind. On this day, it was super windy. You know, normally we'd be going about four miles an hour and the wind was so bad, we were doing about under two and a half. So it took over seven hours to go 17 miles and I was just getting beaten up. And it was five o'clock. And I had 50 more miles to go to finish it. And, you know, it was towards the end and I, and it was starting to become a, a real challenge day to day. Like my knees were really starting to bother me early, uh, like it miles like 12 and 15. And I pulled myself from the water and said, I, I can't go anymore. Um, and that I, I hated that. And on the, my wife picked me up. She dropped me off, picked me up every day. And on the car ride to the place we were staying that night, um, she, our kids were back at home kind of staying with friends and family and a couple of folks checked in basically just to say, Hey, your kids are good, but they were on speakerphone and they kind of heard I was in the car and they were like, again, like so supportive. They're like, Chris, you would not believe everybody's talking about you. And I'm like, okay. And I sort of said to my wife, like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I have 50 miles to go, but there's no way I'm letting these people down. So yeah. drop me off by myself at 7 a.m. and uh, we're just going to bust through this day and I don't care we're going to get it done and so like mentally not being able to go nowhere is a huge advantage um, and then like the support was just so inspiring to me and that's what really kept me going and so like coming off of it as I mentioned like I've done two Ironmans and those those are great um, but you know it's not like people are like hey cool Ironman um, I, I don't, I won't ever be able to experience anything like that again. And that's been hard because I'm like, golly, like that, it was nine days of full focus. So busy all the time when I wasn't paddling, I was actively recovering or trying to figure out where we're going next or looking at the wind or, or whatever it might be. And it, it was just nonstop. And then, you know, I was getting all these messages from everybody and then literally it was over and it was like, I'm checking email and then I'm back on Zoom calls. I'm like, golly, like what a crash <laughs> like, yeah. to go from that to back to reality. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've like, I've my, I'm almost making it like a mission of mine now just to randomly reach out to some of my friends and be like, I don't know what you're going through, dude, but you got it. Like, just keep going, whatever it is. Um, and I know it's, it's going to probably miss all the time. Like they're going to be like, I don't know. I was just brushing my teeth and Chris sent me a message to just keep going. <laughs> uh, but I, I just feel like we like, I just feel like we need that right now. Like even people were kind of reaching out to me and saying like, it was so much fun to have a good distraction. It wasn't COVID and it wasn't an election. It was just, just watching some guy get the crap beat out of him for a good cause. Um, <laughs> And I wish there was more ways we could do that. So I'm trying to figure that out now is like, how do I, how do I create that environment for more people?
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you take us back to more about your uh, experience out on the water? So, so that first day you experienced some headwinds and you were, uh, you were apparently feeling like, well, I bit off way more than I can chew. How did you push through that and continue? And, and then also, can you talk about a little bit what it was like out there on the whole? Yeah, the first day was the worst and hardest. Um, and we started in Havergrace, which is the northern end of the Chesapeake Bay, so the top of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, uh, we had we changed the course completely three days before it started. So I was supposed to go down the western shore, so like kind of getting near Baltimore and Annapolis and St. Mary's um, City and down the western shore. Um, and the way the weather turned forced me over to the eastern shore. So. Mm -hmm. When I was talking about the 10 to 15 plus knot winds, they were all coming from the northeast for like five straight days. And so if I had gone down the western shore with a northeast wind and, and east is, you know, when the wind from the northeast hits the bay and you're on the western shore, it just there's nothing to block it. It just is rolling across the bay right at you. I would have ended up paddling, you know, just getting pounded, forced into the shoreline and paddling on my right side for seven hours to keep to keep from being blown off the bay. Um, so I moved to the eastern shore to get some protection. So I can kind of, you know, go up against the shoreline and get a little bit of protection from the wind. That first day in Havre de Grace, um, Havre is beautiful and the water up there is super clear because it's, it's more fresh. It's coming off the Susquehanna, so there's less salinity. You can see a ton of grasses. The visibility is like six to eight feet. You can see the fish below you. It's, it's amazing. Mm. Um, and so I was actually super excited. I had trained up there. I knew what the conditions were like. Uh, you get a little bit of a current off the Susquehanna kind of pumping into the bay. And I was really confident. I'm like, this is going to be great. You know, first day, perfect area to start. Here we go. And th the conditions that day, that day were just the worst. They were 15 plus knot winds, sometimes gusting to 20, small craft advisory, which means, you know, <laughs> Basically, they're saying like any boat or less than 22 feet, I think, is yeah. advised not to be on the water. And, and I'm on a 14 foot paddleboard, um, <laughs> you know, three foot waves. Um, and I was just getting really badly beaten. And on top of that, I was trying to hug the shoreline a little bit. And it just so happened that morning they were practicing artillery rounds at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, which is a military uh base and when they do that they put patrol boats about 500 yards maybe more off the shoreline and you can't get anywhere near the shoreline so those <laughs> patrol boats were like get away from here and so we kind of were I had, I had a kayaker with me for most of the way so we were kind of stuck out near the middle of the bay just getting literally thrown down and across the bay and at one point I was like, all right, this is, I can't take this anymore. Like we got to get over to the other side and just deal with it because at least if it's, you know, we'll get someone behind us going across and then we'll just have to figure it out. But we need to get closer to the shoreline. It'll break up the waves a little bit. And so, you know, I went across the shoreline. I, you know, in training in 22 weeks of training, four days a week on a paddleboard, uh, I mean, just in the water all the time. I maybe fell in eight times over the course of those five and a half months. That first day I fell in probably 15 times. Mm -hmm. um, and on one of them, uh, I had a towboat US 
was one of our partners, and so they actually had a towboat following me the whole time, which provided some good visibility, and they know their waters really well. And then I'd have one to two support boats, usually buddies of mine, um, that were also providing kind of guidance and support. And on that first day, you know, we started to cross the bay to get over to the eastern shore, and I, I fell in again. I got back on my board. I, I didn't notice anything, but I was shaking uncontrollably. And it just so happened right at that time that the, that the support boat was right next to me. Normally, they'd be like 50 to 100 yards off because I'm in shallow water. But I was across in the middle of the bay at this point. And there also just so happened to be an EMT on the boat who I didn't know. But he was like, whoa, dude, why are you shaking so much? Are you cold? I'm like, no, I'm good. And he's like, all right, well, what day is it? I'm like, it's today. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, it's not the answer we're looking for. Uh, we need to get you off the water. So. They put me on the boat for probably 30 minutes, like stripped me out all my wet clothes, got dry clothes on and just sat there and warmed up. And then I got back on the board and finished over in Rock Hall, which was about 33 miles and took almost eight hours. But like the falling in, the shivering, the hypothermia, like I had never felt more exhausted physically or mentally when, when I was done that day. Like that, that was a day where, you know, I said to my wife, I might be in over my head on this. We're we're 33 miles in. I've never felt like this before. And we wow. have 180 plus miles to go. How did you know where you were going to stay every night? Did you stay in a hotel room or somebody's house? We really didn't. Yeah. So because we changed uh, kind of the course at the last minute for the wind, um, it was really day by day. So the first couple days I stayed home, but that meant I was, you know, my wife would pick me up. We drive almost an hour and a half back home. You know, the next day, hour and a half back to the same location, just because we really, in some cases on the eastern shore, you know, part of the problem is um, there's not a lot of places to stay, and access to the water is harder to get to. Um, mm -hmm. So, as we kind of, and and each day, I really, it was really hard to figure out where I was going. So the the paddle ended up being a lot more tactical, which made like logistics hard. So like I would be done the first day and then I'd be immediately on my phone looking at wind finder and looking at maps and trying to figure out, all right, based on tomorrow's wind conditions, where can we get to? Um, and I need to get to a place that when we finish, we're in a favorable spot for the following day based on those wind conditions. So like every day I was just kind of navigating maps and wind direction and everything else tied and kind of determining last minute, like here, here's where, where we might end up, but it could be shorter. It could be longer. Um, but this is our goal. And logistically that made things hard. So like, you know, we'd kind of last minute at a holiday inn. Um, one night we got super lucky and stayed. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation has a place called the Karen um, Noonan Center in Crotcheron. We stayed there one night. Mm. Um, had a buddy who has a place near Deal Island, stayed there one night. So we were kind of all over the place. And so we were, you know, that was part of it too. Like, you know, you're, you're going down the bay, you're in a different spot every day, staying in a different place every night. Um, in some ways, that was obviously super hard logistically, but that also made it like when I talked about just being on the go all the time, like there was very little downtime um, between days uh, because we were usually traveling, had a ton of craft to pack, uh, you know, food, nutrition, supplement, board, all the gear for the board. So every day it was kind of packing, unpacking, packing, unpacking. Um, and even at night, it was like super hard to, 
to come down. Like just, it's, it's hard to explain. Like you're tired, but you're, you, you have a lot to do cause you got to plan for the next day. And mm. it was just hard to like unwind. Did you carry all your stuff, um, all your supplies on the board or did your support boats help out with that? It was both. So what I would do is I'd carry like a half a day's worth with me. So one camelback with about 70 ounces of uh, electrolytes, two to three protein bars, two, I, I call them Iron Man sandwiches, but only because I just ate them during an Iron Man. And then that would be kind of like my first half of the day. And then I'd roll over to the support boat and just swap it all out. New, okay. Brand new Camelback, fully loaded, new bars, new sandwiches, everything ready to go. What's in an Iron Man sandwich? Yeah, so the Iron Man sandwiches, I use gluten-free bread, uh, usually sun butter or peanut butter, cinnamon, honey, and bananas. That's that's my Iron oh. Man sandwich. Okay. They get so That's the beauty of those types of sandwiches. Like They can get smashed up. They can get oh. dry. They, anything can happen to them, and it doesn't really affect it. So... Um, you know, I could carry an Ironman sandwich for four hours. Unfortunately, on the on the water, like it was hard to keep them dry. <laughs> mm. So um, I often had like some soggy sandwiches, but um, that was that was part of the fun. And for liquids, fluids, any kind of special mixes or anything like that? Yeah, a lot of electrolytes uh, and a lot of I had an, uh, I use a amino power uh, amino powder. Uh, from Keon, it's Keon Aminos. So um, I had usually like four or five water bottles with aminos in it, and then the Camelbacks, which were about 70 ounces each, were electrolytes. Okay. What about uh, tracking? How did you manage mm. that? Was it live tracking, or was it was it after the fact? Yeah. You go home and update a map or something, or no, it was it was live. So I have a. Uh, Sunto watch that tracked it live, and then I had uh, it's called a it's from NK Sports. It's basically called a sub trainer. It's almost like have you ever seen like those bike computers that that cyclists have? It's a little ver it's actually a bigger version of that that attaches to the front of my board um, and has a satellite signal. Um, so that would track speed, time, distance. It has heart rate on it, and then my watch was tracking speed time distance heart rate and then actually i had my phone on as well so i was using map my tracks to to do it live so folks could kind of follow me so all all that stuff would somehow feed into that website so map my tracks was basically an app that was feeding into the website and then the my Sunto watch i used like i, I would take snapshots of that um from you know i'd kind of sync it uh to the website and take a snapshot so folks could see like that was a really easy way to see like calories burned time distance average speed elevation and then it also would show like power output recovery time um i think like on most that was kind of the funny thing is like you know the sunto watch is doing my heart rate and it, you know anytime you do an exercise it says oh here's your recovery time for this activity and like every day it would say, you need 120 hours to recover from today. Like, oh, great. Well, I got to go back at it in 12 hours. So I don't have four days, to <laughs> five days to recover. Did you see any container ships or anything like that out there? We saw a few. Um, that was kind of funny, too. So we, we would see eagles every day, like two to three eagles a day, almost well, to the point calling. where it was like, yeah, yeah, all uh -huh. kinds of bald eagles. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're pretty, uh, there's a pretty good population on the bay. And, and I don't know if it was because of the time of the year. We, we were just, we saw a lot of them. Probably, I was on the water nine days. We definitely saw 15. Um, it, almost to the point where it was like, oh, bald eagle. Okay. Like, it was so like, it's like I've seen a pigeon. Um, huh. uh, we saw some ships. I mean, we weren't in the shipping channel. The shipping channel is like the middle of the bay. Um, I, I actually saw a lot more ships when I was training just because I, I just based on where I can get in the water, I was really more closer to the shipping channel. Um, the funny thing was like, I mean, the, what I saw, like the bay is spectacular. And I, I saw places that I'd never heard of that I'm now in love with. Um, like the Honga River, you know, Fishing Creek, Tar Bay. Like I just had a very unique perspective. People have gone up and down the bay in boats, but usually they're in the middle of the bay. And most of the time I was, you know, 50 to 100 yards off the shoreline, which helped because we could see the eagles. But just being that close and in some areas where, you know, boats can't get because it's shallow, it was amazing. I have so much appreciation for how spectacular the bay is. And again, a lot of these places like Claiborne, which is near St. Michael's, Claiborne Landing, beautiful spot off of Eastern Bay, um, Taylor Island, Slaughter Creek, never heard of any of these places. Honga River. Honga River was by far my favorite spot. It's like, and, and a lot of these places kind of south of St. Michael's are, it's like they've been undiscovered. I mean, un untouched for the last 50 years and almost undiscovered. I, I kind of felt like Captain Smith out there, like exploring the bay. Um, nobody around, no development, you know, just trees, beautiful river, bay water. And it, it just felt, it was just amazing. And, and on one of those runs, and my wife, you know, she'd see me every day and, 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 and kind of knew the condition I was in. But, you know, we went down Taylor's Island one day along the shoreline. It was spectacular. We, we took this little narrows called Fishing Creek and we got on the Honga River. And I texted my wife. I was like, I'm having so much fun today. Like, it is unbelievably beautiful here. Um, and then, of course, you know, four hours later, I was dying because it was a 26-mile day and I was exhausted. Um, but other than, like, eagles and, like, some fish and crabs and just the natural beauty, you know, it wasn't until, which I, I sort of felt like the eagles were our guide. That was kind of like, you know, God's way of saying, like, you're on the right path. And then ironically, like, people had seen dolphins way up north this season. Um, I don't know if there's a reason for it, but, like, north of the Bay Bridge and, you know, sharks up here. And so I was expecting to see something especially because we were usually going out pretty early in the morning and you know we'd see nothing and i'm like two miles from the atlantic ocean hadn't seen anything and sure enough like right maybe a hundred yards from me these three dolphins breach and wow. so i paddled towards them then they went underneath my board and they breached on the other side and cool. it was yeah, it was unbelievable. And I had a filmmaker following me the whole time. So there's going to be a documentary um, on this whole adventure. And awesome. she was like, she was like, Chris, this whole thing just became about dolphins. Like that was unbelievable to see. Um, and so I kind of felt like, you know, at the end there, like that was kind of like the final like blessing, like to have these dolphins to get so close to them and have them jump out of the water two miles from the finish was that was all I needed. It was amazing. 
Wow, you, you go from starting out to wondering what the heck you were getting yourself into and um, experiencing hyperthermia and all that, and then to go through all nine days and then have an experience like that makes it all worth it, doesn't it? A hundred percent. I mean, I can't wait to, you know, I've already talked to some buddies of mine. I'm like, let's go do parts of this again. And I've talked mm -hmm. to like the Maryland Department of Tourism about, you know, making the route. Uh, you know, I, I, I mapped out two routes, Western Shore, Eastern Shore, like kind of promoting it as almost like an Appalachian Trail. If people want to paddle or kayak, here are different routes they can take. and Here's where they can stay. And um, I'll probably do one more long paddle this, this year. And then next spring, I'll definitely get back out and do repeat some of the days that I had. Like that Taylor Island, Honda River run uh, was just amazing. It's super remote. Um, and so I'm sure I'll get back down there and then everything near Cape Charles, Cape Charles is really, really cool town, um, on the Southern, really Southern part of the Bay, probably 30 to 40 minutes North of Virginia beach. Um, super cool spot. I'll definitely paddle back, back there again. Yeah. There's so much history uh, on the Bay and in the rivers as well. Be interesting to correlate all that. Well, that was part of it, too. So, like, outside of Cape Charles, there's a state park called uh, Kipto Peak. And so there are, I think it's nine, but I might, might be wrong, nine cement ships from World War II. They were supply ships that they sunk, and they're concrete. They're, they use concrete ships for these supply ships. Uh, they're sunk in there, and now they're just reefs. And so, like, I mean, I paddled right through them, like, going, seeing, like, I mean, there's certainly a lot of, you know, Native American history and um, environmental history and then just U.S. history and everything else in the band. Then you see like World War II stuff. Um, I was just like blown away. Like, like this place is just so the, the whole bay. It really is. The bay is our Grand Canyon. And it, it may not be marketed as such, but it is as spectacular and more people need to be aware of it. And how and how amazing it is. It's the problem is it's harder. Like when I mentioned before, I never had a boat, so the paddleboard was my first time on the water. Mm -hmm. It's just harder to access. So, mm -hmm. um, but there's plenty of places to go to, state parks, you know, that that you can enjoy the bay as much as as much as I did. And I'm gonna try my best to like bring more attention to areas like the Honga River and Cape Charles and. Kipto Peak State Park and you know Claiborne Landing and there's another park called Elk Neck State Park and Chris Field that to me were just really really amazing parts of the bay that very few people get to. Hmm. That's great. Um, was there that, that kind of segues to my other question about um, where is it? I wrote it down. Uh, any other big surprises about this whole adventure that you weren't kind of expecting um well i mean i think the two were you know the the tactical part of it so you know we had this route planned out and mapped out and we knew where we were going and where we were staying and all that kind of stuff and that all changed right just because of conditions and so on a day-to-day -day basis not only did i really not know where i was going but i had to really like strategically figure out destinations based on conditions that day and then also the conditions the following day um so that was a lot more work than i expected and then again like all the support i didn't really know what to expect there or if 
you know, I thought we'd raise a lot of money and awareness, but I, I didn't expect people to like get behind me, so to speak, and cheer me on. Um, that was really inspirational for me. We interviewed a guy um, two two episodes ago who uh, who sailed single-handedly from Berlin or not Berlin but uh, the UK uh, all the way down to Australia with a uh, overland crossing the United States and he had a great comment that stuck with me where he had the opportunity to either fly fly home which was about a 12-hour flight or to experience every point in between where he needed to go. And um, that's kind of what I'm hearing in, in your adventure as well as a profound uh, appreciation for all the points in between La Havre and um, down there. And where, where'd you end up again? Cape Charles. <laughs> Cape Charles. Yeah. yeah, just south of Cape Charles. So yeah, it was Havre de Grace all the way down to I, the Atlantic Ocean. I just, I went off of um, Fisherman's Inlet. was kind of the last point of land. And then I went around there and into the Atlantic. So yeah, no, hundred percent. So um, I mean, I think, you know, everybody's heard of uh, Annapolis and Baltimore and probably St. Michael's and Easton and Cambridge and some of the more popular places. And those are all beautiful spots, uh, but it was the ones that I had never heard of. Uh, yeah. I'd heard of Cape Charles, but I'd never been there. I'd never even heard of the Hunger River. I didn't know what it was. And, and even people who are avid voters who I talked to about it are like, I've never heard of the Hunger River either. Mm -hmm. um, like those those places are where you're like it was just the surprise of it where you're like wow like how was this not on like my radar at all and and the reason is because why would it be right <laughs> like the only way to see it is like your other guest mentioned is to go from point to point and not skip over um, from one place to another. Yeah, on a slow moving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, around. very slow moving. Exactly. Cindy and I were thinking about doing something similar uh, next year, and we were thinking about maybe rowing down the Potomac or rowing the bay or something like that. And we were just wondering if you had any advice you might be willing to to share with us to prepare for something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the Potomac's long. Um, that's no <laughs> yeah. easy task. Um, so, you know, rowing would be, it'd be easier than paddling for sure. Um, you know, the biggest thing is just going to be uh, tide. So you want to go at high tide because you want to catch the current going out. So if you're paddling down the Potomac and it's high tide, you, you start at max high tide. The water is going to start, the current's going to start to shift down going out of the bay. And so having that current is really key. It's almost like, when you're at the airport and you get on that conveyor belt, that walking conveyor belt, that's the current with you. And when you get off of it, that's the current against you, right? You, you don't notice it until it's not there. And so that was something that we had to pay attention to every day was when is high tide? Usually it was the week that we were doing it. It was usually pretty early in the morning. So we'd want to catch high tide. And then on the Potomac, you're going to, you're going to be looking for wind like, um, you know, like an east wind would not be good for you uh, on the Potomac because that's going to be like a headwind. Um, mm -hmm. You could duck along the shorelines to get away from a north wind. You can duck along the other shoreline to get away from the south wind, you know, um, a little bit. You know, the, the Potomac snakes a little bit. So you just need to watch. The tides are the biggest thing because you can control that. Wind, you can't. 
um, you know, I would say pick a week if you if you're just kind of like doing it on a whim, like just pick a week where the wind conditions look favorable. Cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. So what can and the the, the other thing I would say about that too, by the way, is that last, the the mouth of the Potomac and the Chesapeake Bay that is some rough water. Um, yeah. So that yeah, that's that's pretty. It's ten miles across the Potomac you went by, at that you point. Went through that straight, didn't you? I was on the other side, but originally I was supposed to go and um, I think it's it's a Point Lookout. I think it's Point Lookout. Yeah, Point Lookout State Park is kind of the um, northern side of the Potomac. So that was going to be one of my runs, crossing the Potomac and getting over into Virginia. Um, and everybody I talked to is like, that is some, like, you got current. The, the, the problem when you get down there is two currents meet. You have a current coming out of the Potomac and you have a current coming down the bay. And so it yeah. ends up being like, like a washing machine right there. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we turn around before we get to that. <laughs> what can you uh, recommend that average people watching your adventure do to continue to support the bay now that your project is over? Yep. So, well, they can go to baypaddle.org and they can donate there. Uh, $10 puts a thousand oysters in the bay. Um, you can text uh, Bay Paddle to 44321 and that, you know, also can donate there. Um, we actually have day paddle gear, uh, so trucker hats and T-shirts that also support oyster recovery. Um, and then the documentary will be out. I, I think the filmmaker it's going to take her a couple of weeks, probably towards the end of the year. It'll be a short, you know, 40-minute film. Um, I'll I will put together a race next summer, probably based on one of the days uh, from the paddle. So it'll be a 20 to 30-mile race uh, for you know, any any paddler, outrigger, kayak, canoe, stand up, whatever it might be. And I'll try to pick kind of one of my favorite locations or at least maybe a location that I think people would really enjoy paddling. Um, awesome. uh, so that'll be something that will happen next year. Cool. That is very cool. Have you ever heard of the Y Island Regatta? No. Oh, you should totally do that. You should look into that if you're if you're interested. It's it's around Y Island in Delaware, I think it is. is that yeah, Delaware? I think it's Maryland. Delaware. It's Delaware. I think so. No, or, no it's Maryland. Maryland. No, it's Maryland. Yeah, it's a super fun race, and they have stand up paddle boards as well as rowing, and you um you do twelve miles kayaking. around kayaking. Yeah, and you do twelve miles around the island, and uh they have obviously different heats based on what kind of boat you have, and it's just a really really fun race. Lots of camaraderie. You'd probably really dig it. That's cool. Yeah, I'm looking at their site now. Yeah, that's fun. I'll definitely, I'll definitely take a look at that. Yeah, that was one of the things too. Is I mean, there's a really, um, there's a really good paddling community here um, in yeah. in Maryland, and there are not a lot of um, paddling races. And like for a lot of the kayaks or outriggers or ocean kayaks, like they need they need a good long distance run. Like a 10 or 12 mile ride is not it's not, I mean, it's good, but it's, you know, they're moving faster than the SUPs. Um, you yeah. know, um, if you want to like, like the the days that I had were marathon days, right? Seven hours on the water, 20 to 30 miles. Like that would be a good four hour kayak for sure. And um, I think that's what folks want to do. Um, and the Chattajack one that I talked about, like most of the 
paddlers are outriggers and ocean kayaks. They're not subs um, because it's a point to point. So you're not turning around. You're just blasting straight the whole time, um, which makes it fun for those folks, too, because uh, it's just easier to navigate in a straight line. Hmm. I guess our final question for you then is, um, are there any books that you have read recently that you'd like to recommend? Um, yes. Um, there are some books that, that, I mean, I, I, I'm just pulling up my Kindle right now because I read all the time. Um, so I just read, uh, it takes what it takes, which is Trevor Moad, I think his name is. And it's, uh, it's really about the mental aspect of, of athlete training. Russell Wilson is in that book. Um, I've read The Obstacle is the Way, Ryan Holiday. I like a lot of Ryan Holiday's books. Um, that was a really good one. Um, so those two are ones that I recently read. I read It Takes What It Takes, like right before the paddle, because I, I really wanted to get myself kind of mentally in, in a good place where, you know, It Takes What It Takes, just kind of the mindset of like, whatever happens good or bad it doesn't really matter there's no reaction to it either way you just keep going um you know the obstacle of the way is if you've read that one by ron holiday it's more about like there is no easy way right you, you have to get through the obstacle whatever it is in order to get to where you want to go and so um i i i think the paddle was a good like a really good metaphor for like life in general right the only thing that went according to plan was that we started on the day that we said we were going to start and we finished on the day that we said we were going to finish. And that was it. Every day was totally unplanned and I had no idea what was going to happen. I couldn't control the conditions. I couldn't control the weather. I really couldn't control how my, I mean, I could, I could do everything I could in terms of diet and recovery and sleep to control how my body's going to feel but I was putting it through something and had never experienced before so um, the the key to it all was to just keep going right and so we started when we said we were going to start and we finished when we said we were going to finish and every day in between was hard and different and I had to deal with different challenges but I just decided that every day I'm going to wake up and get on my board and see what happens and ultimately that's what got me to the finish line that I just had this mindset of uh, a lot of it came from all the support that I talked about like I'm not going to let these people down I'm just going to keep going and 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 at the end of the day we'll see where we end up um and fortunately for me it ended up at you know exactly where I wanted to end on the day that I said I would finish you know I just it's I was just as I mentioned before like it was just such an unbelievable experience for me um I'm I'm like literally trying to figure out how do I experience something like that again, where uh, someone who shouldn't be able to do this goes and does something that everybody said was impossible. And I just took an enormous leap of faith. I do read the Bible every day. So maybe that's probably the book I should recommend. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and just got up every day and just decided I was going to move forward. And at the end of the day, we, you know, it worked out not exactly as planned, but it worked out um, maybe maybe better than I could have ever imagined it. And the experience was definitely better than I could have ever envisioned. And so, I don't know, I just have a lot of gratitude, a ton of appreciation for the day. And 
I when I finished, and I had no emotion when I finished. Like I crossed from the Atlantic, I fell into the water, and I had zero emotion uh, at the finish. When when I got back on the boat to get out of the water, and I think part of it was I just sort of realized in that moment, like uh, this was the start. This is this like paddling the bay was now the starting point, or at least finishing the paddle. Like the mission is to bring more oysters to the bay, to save the bay, to make sure that we leave it better than we found it. And I just finished the first part of that mission. So it's almost like I, I finished and I'm like, I'm now motivated to do like the next thing for the bay. Awesome. Yeah. And let's go put some more oysters in there as well. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, cool. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Good talking to you both. Um, let me know if you have any follow-up questions. Again, baypaddle.org. Uh, place where you can find out more information. Donate.